This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, we are uh, trying to prepare our hearts for this Christmas season uh, by thinking about Christmas as a party, as like the greatest party you could ever be invited to because it's the party that celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ. And so this way of thinking has, has really kind of become sort of that hopefully is affecting you. And it's helping you think of, as we talked last week, about how you come to the party and you're fully present. You're not distracted. You're not thinking about tomorrow or the next party. You're, you're all in and fully present with what God has uh, in store for you. We've also talked about how you can have sort of these party vibe killers, as I call them. And, and we talked in the first week about how complaining is, is a party vibe killer. It will just absolutely ruin Christmas for, for you and for the people around you. And today I want to talk about really the people around you. I, I want to talk about, about really, I think, a choice that we all have to make, um, whether we think about it or not. There's a, a conscious choice that you will make this Christmas, and it has to do with the people that God has placed around you. I, I can imagine for many of you there will be people around your, your homes and around your Christmas dinner tables that, that you love and you can't wait to spend time with. You love having them around. And then I would imagine that there are some people around your Christmas table and around your Christmas gatherings that, well, they're harder to love. And I want to encourage you this morning to make a decision what you're going to do with those people around you. Are you going to sort of put distance and push them away? Or are you going to allow your heart this Christmas to draw near to every single person that God brings you in contact with? Maybe another way to think about it and the way I would like you to think about this this morning is a little something I'm calling the space between us. And I think this is really important that you decide in advance what you're going to do. How, how do you treat the space between you and the people around you? Do you treat the people around you with love and care and, and, and fairness and equality and treatment that, that shows that you love them or maybe not so much? Um, I think this time of year is, is challenging on so many levels. In fact, I just earlier in the week uh, flew down to South Carolina to visit my son who's in the military and got to spend a few days with him in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'll tell you, the trip, uh, the visit with my son was great. The travel, on the other hand, was not so great. In fact, it was, it was sort of holiday travel at its finest, right? Like nothing seemed to go right. My flight was delayed. And I would just tell you that most people that I ran across were not thinking about the space between me and them. In fact, I think everybody just simply had their minds on getting home for the holidays. So you know how you go to the gate and over the intercom they, they came and they said, attention passengers, uh, if you left your laptop bag at checkpoint security, we have it for you. And then I'm sitting there a minute longer and then they come back on and they say, attention passengers, if you've forgotten your shoes, please return to checkpoint security. And I'm getting ready to board my plane and they came on a third time and they said, uh, excuse us one more time, this is very important, but passengers, if you forgot your container of donut holes, please return to checkpoint security. Everyone, their mind was just elsewhere. I had a flight to O'Hare and got delayed, and then finally, after about an hour, I, uh, we were able to board the plane, and, and at this point, nobody was in a good mood, and I was making my way back to my seat, and sure enough, someone is sitting in my seat, and I look at my phone, sure enough, 10B, that's my seat, I bought it, it's mine, right, you know, get out, <laughs> and I could just tell the person sitting there, it was a younger gal, and she had headphones in, and, 
And I knew I was going to have to kind of like break her out of the headphone trance. You know what that is? And, and so I did one of these, excuse me, um, I'm in 10B. Are you in 10B? And she just kind of looked at me and kind of gave me this look and I think a few words. And she was like, well, duh, of course I'm in 10B. And I knew. It's like, all right, game on. One of us is right and the other is moving. And so it took her a moment, and people are just sort of backing up behind me, and I can kind of feel this pressure mounting, and sure enough, she looks at her phone, and who do you think was right? Your pastor was right. And I, I rubbed it in her face, like just total Christmas. No, I did not do that. I said, I said, where are you seated? And she goes, well, I'm in 9B. I'm like, well, I'm right here. I'll take your spot. And before you think I'm some hero in this story, on the return flight home, I sat in the wrong seat, and somebody had to have that conversation with me. So it just goes to show that we have these opportunities. How are we going to handle them? How are you going to choose in what you're going to do with this space, this gap between us? See, I think Christmas time for many people, they kind of get sentimental, but, but I want to get real. I mean, if Jesus came to be the Emmanuel, to be the God that is with us, then he demonstrates that he closes the gap in each one of our lives, and we're to do the same. So to do this this morning, I want to take a look at a story in Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along in these, uh, these words of this story. This is probably not your traditional Christmas type of message. Jesus is not a baby lying in a manger. We will certainly get to that on Christmas Eve in those services. In fact, Jesus is sort of at the opposite end of life. He's about 30 years old. He's leading this ministry. He is trying to share this good news of grace to all. Jesus actually has a job. His profession is a teacher. He's a rabbi in that day. Uh, rabbis were sort of the people that, that called uh, young adults to come and follow them, and they would teach them the way of uh, the Jewish traditions. And, and yet Jesus was so unconventional as a rabbi. He didn't call the best and the brightest students. In fact, he, he looked for the exact opposite. He looked for the type of students that were sort of the outcasts, those that were kind of loners, and, and sort of the, uh, the, the ones that no one would call to him, the sinners. And he called these individuals his disciples. And in fact, his little crew of disciples has grown to, at this point to be quite large. He's got 72 disciples. And, and with them, he's trying to lead them in this way of where the least is the greatest. And and if you want to know what God is like, then you need to look at the Son. He sends them out, and they begin to do this ministry, and it, it creates for them also this, uh, this great group of critics. In fact, the critics are actually larger than the disciples, and, and they are looking to put a space between them and Jesus. They're looking to put Jesus on the cross. And so one of the experts comes to Jesus and asks him this question. We're going to kind of pick up the conversation right in the middle, sort of asking Jesus this question. Jesus is going to give uh, an answer. He's going to give a conversation to this expert in the law, as well as he's going to tell them a story, a parable. And so I want you to see kind of the two of these hand in hand. It's Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now just a, a quick pause in the story so you don't think that this is so out of left field. This was actually a really common question. How do I inherit eternal life? If we were to translate this today, it would be basically, 
how do I get to heaven? I mean, what do I, how do I kind of set my life, engineer it in a way so that when this life is over, I go to that place and not that place? They were very concerned about that. It was kind of an obsession. And what he's looking for is sort of the, the check-the-box kind of answers. What do I got to do? What unlocks the secret code so that I go to heaven someday? And notice that Jesus answers with really not an answer. He answers with another question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Kind of invites the man to give his own answer. And he responds in a very typical Jewish sort of response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This was known as the Shema. You were, if you were a good Jew, you would recite this at least three times per day. And he gives this answer, and Jesus says, well done. You crack the code, good answer, enough of the conversation, end of story. Well, not so for this guy. In fact, this next verse sort of reveals his heart, picking up in verse 29. The man, it says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I should have never asked him this question because we're about to enter into the story in just a moment, but we see his heart. He's kind of like me on that plane. He wants to be right. I want to be right. I don't want to just have an answer. I want to have the right answer that's better than anybody else's response. And now we're going to go from the conversation to the story, to this parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I've never preached this, but I kind of discovered something I'd never seen before. There's sort of this pattern in this story. And I want you to watch for it because there's going to be three sort of main characters And each character is going to come onto the scene. They're going to come into the scene. They're going to have an opportunity to do something, and then they're going to exit the scene. So there's this coming, this opportunity to do, and then this going. And I want you to watch what happens to each individual. Watch for this. Picking back up now in the parable, starting in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, okay, here's the first character to come into the story, happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too, the second person, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But the third character, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then Jesus kind of pulls back out of the story with this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, we're talking about the space between us. How how do we care for each other? How do we care for the people that God brings, maybe even at times what we seem to think is randomly into our life? And this story is, is simple enough to follow, but I think it's very convicting. In fact, it's kind of terrifying how violent the story is. I mean, it's a story, but this man is moving from one town to the next, and he's robbed, he's beaten, he's stripped naked and left, you know, half dead. And the people hearing this that day would have kind of immediately sort of 
associated this like you might as you hear stories kind of go through your news feed every day, right? They would have been like, oh yeah, this could happen. We could see this happening. In fact, the road that Jesus refers to is a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. In fact, I got a little picture of it. Um, I thought this was interesting. I've never been to the Holy Land. It's kind of way up high on my bucket list. Anyone want to go to the Holy Land with me? I would love to go there someday. Uh, but if you go with me, I'm making this hike. You got you to vow to go on this hike with me, which is from Jerusalem, which is up in the Judean hillside, down to Jericho. Um, it's not only kind of a, a hike with a lot of elevation, the next slide will show that it has like a ton of twisty, turny spots. And don't slip, because that would be perilous. Um, this path would have also had lots of places for uh, people to hide out. There were caves along the way, and it was just kind of known. This is sort of the part of town you didn't want to be caught alone in, because you would likely fall victim to robbers. And then we meet these three characters. First character comes into the scene, and again, you're watching for this pattern, right? The priest comes onto the scene of this person who's half dead. No, by the way, if he's stripped naked, there's no way of identifying if this person is wealthy or not or what he is, actually. And the first person, the priest, comes on the scene, and he does nothing. And then exits the scene, probably as quickly as he could, hoping that no one would see him. And again, uh, theologians are really interesting because they would say by the way this road was, he would have literally had to step over this individual. That's how close he probably was. Couldn't like, go way out of his way, would have fallen off the cliff. But the priest fails this space between us test. So the next person to come on the scene is a Levite. And a Levite is sort of someone who would study under a priest. Um, today you would maybe consider a, a Levite to be someone in a church leadership position. So maybe elders in your church or deacons in the church or someone who's a, you know, a ministry volunteer. Either way, it would be someone that's sort of bought into the way in which you know, church life is to work. We serve and we care for one another. And the Levite, same pattern, right? Comes onto the scene and what? Does nothing. Doesn't do a thing. And then leaves again as quickly as he possibly could. Now I imagine in some ways... Both of these individuals would have got some snickers from the crowd, right? Like, I mean, Jesus is telling this story, and the pastor comes on the scene, and they would have laughed, right? Like, hypocrite, right? I mean, church leader comes on the scene, doesn't do anything. <sighs> Go figure. I mean, there's those people, you know, they say one thing from the stage, but yet they can't lift a finger and do anything themselves. And so I imagine the crowd is sort of like bracing, like they're ready. The punchline is like, oh, well, the third person to come on the scene is going to be a an ordinary person, like one of us. That's going to be the hero of the story. And then they hear the words, a Samaritan. And I imagine their jaws just dropped. Now, again, we have a hard time maybe contextualizing this, but a Samaritan that day would have been despised, uh, hated. In fact, Samaritans were considered by not only the Jews, but even by the Greeks of that day to sort of be like dirty. And unholy, unrighteous, they called them half-breeds, they would literally go miles out of their way if it meant they could avoid a Samaritan. And that's the hero in this story. And I don't know, I feel like just for a moment, you need to kind of pause and sort of ask yourself, well, who is that for me today? In fact, maybe just take a moment. I don't know what category it would be, but who is the person that is the furthest from you? And maybe you have to kind of decide who would that be. Would that be someone racially different from you? I mean, as far from you as they could possibly be? 
would that have to be someone that is socially different from you? They don't, they don't hang in the same circles. They don't have any of the same friends. Maybe it's a person financially different from you. Maybe it's a person politically, you know, you're red and they're blue, or you're blue and they're red. And, and you really, if you're honest, you can only kind of get like a very small sketch of who this person is because the person who is so unlike you, you, you really don't even know them that well. And you would probably never have them in your home or, you know, casually know them or do something or care for them in any way. And Jesus says, that's the Samaritan. And Jesus kind of has the knife in him at this point. He begins to sort of turn it, doesn't he? Because he says this person comes and does a lot of things. In fact, there's sort of seven things that get recognized that the Samaritan does. It's sort of a a way in which people could remember it. There were seven kind of staccato things that the person did. He cares. He shows pity on this person. He bandages this person up. He pours oil and wine on the person, which would have been like antiseptic and um, healing agents. And then he places the man on his donkey, takes him to an inn. I imagine this is probably a point where Jesus maybe even is reflecting a little bit on his own birth story, right? His own narrative. He knows that when he was a child and Mary and Joseph were looking for a place to spend the night, there was no room at the inn, and Jesus is kind of just saying to them, look, the Samaritan knew how to treat people better than the people that, that my mom and dad came in contact with. Even opens up his wallet, pulls out two denarii, which would have been about two days' wages, and, and just offers, even above and beyond, if there's anything more, I'll cover the bill. And then when Jesus comes out of the story, he just lets this tension hang. And he asks this guy, which one of these was a neighbor to this man. And did you notice the guy's response? I mean, his response, he, he just simply says, well, the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. And yet Jesus probably felt like, well, that's enough for today, class. And then he leaves them with this response. And I want to put this back on the screen again. I think these are words to, to live by, to go and do likewise. I think these could be some of the most challenging words in your entire Bible. To read the words of Jesus and now to say, I know what Jesus taught, and now I have to go and do likewise. I have to actually not just talk about what it means to be a disciple, but I have to actually live it out. In fact, I think this is true uh, for every person here and including our leadership because we're talking a lot these days about our 10-year vision and, and wanting to be, you know, really mindful about uh, creating and building disciples for Jesus. Uh, but we also want to do that with this other goal of, of serving, coming alongside of needs and initiatives. And I think Jesus says, you know, sometimes you just got to have like a Nike moment. You just have to go and do it. So I said today, I didn't want to be sentimental. I, I wanted to be real. And so I want to give you just some real ways in which you can be mindful and you can close the gap on the space between you and the people around you. First thing I would say is, is very simply that we need to drop the labels. Maybe it should have said drop all labels. I think some labels are, are kind of funny and we joke around with certain labels. You know, we have labels for age groups. I mean, I've been called okay boomer. You know, I've been called that before. And, you know, maybe you've said things like, ah, oh, those millennials. And, and actually, if you think about it, those labels do nothing but but just put space between you and other people, even if you're just joking. And while you're joking, there's probably some element of truth and some 
level that's not even, you know, sarcasm, right? And in fact, maybe you get around the table and, and you have these dinner gatherings with people around Christmas that you only see this one time. And, and you know, you don't even try, but you just know, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to have dinner there. And, and you start going through your head, well, you know, that person, that person drinks too much. And well, that person clearly talks way too much. And you start building this narrative of people, and you may try to be kind about it, and you might try to use, like, nice labels, like, oh, you know, so-and-so, they're just, they're just a little messy. And, and the reality is, when, whenever you start to label someone, and you start to see them as maybe messy, or more messy than you are, then you've kind of missed the whole point and the meaning of why Jesus came. In fact, I think there's kind of a, a cliche we use. If I had a way, I would, I would just ban this cliche. I'm probably guilty of, of saying it uh, many times myself, but have, have you heard the cliche, you know, the reason for the season? Uh, have you heard that? I, I won't ask if you've said it. I know I've said it, but right? And, and then usually in Christian circles, we say things like, well, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. And I got to tell you this morning that, that theologically, that's wrong. <laughs> um, Jesus is not the reason. In fact, the reason is you and me. Because if we weren't so messy, Jesus would have never had to come. I mean, Jesus came as this rescue plan only because of our own messiness. And again, when we start to see people, ah, they're more messy than I am, then we've missed the reason why Jesus has come. In fact, I think we have opportunities to just see people for who they are, just children of God. I have a, a friend, pastor of mine, that just kind of gave me this prayer a long time ago, and he said, you should, you should look at people and Look them right in the eyes, and, and when you do, just simply make this your prayer underneath your heart. Just say, child of God, beautifully and wonderfully made, because that's how God sees everybody. So drop the label. Second thing I would say about closing the gap is, is we need to do more. This parable just clearly teaches that we need to do more. Now, some of you, you might have been here last week, and you might be saying to yourself, well, pastor, you got to be consistent. Because last week, one of your points on the slide was to go slower and do less. So you're the hypocrite, Ron, right? Like, you're like that priest in the story. I mean, be consistent. And, and again, I would say context matters because I did tell you to go slower and do less uh, in the mindset of being sort of scattered. And to be more fully present, you need to do less in the realm of maybe what serves you and, and to really focus on your relationship with God. But this story challenges us in a different way. It doesn't say to do less when it comes to the people around us. It actually encourages us to do more, to find the ways and, and impact that we can make by serving the people around us. Uh, Mike was up here at the beginning of the service, and, and Mike is working really hard these days on this rooted uh, curriculum. And it's a small group study that I uh, would just put my endorsement on. It is such a good curriculum to go through. And one of the things I love about it is it is it gets you involved with other people. One of the things about Rooted is it encourages you to, to do a serving project as a group. And so our staff went through Rooted, and we decided to serve. And we spent uh, an, a day going down to Degage uh, Ministries in downtown Grand Rapids. Now, I'll tell you, over the years, I've, I've served at God's Kitchen and Mel Trotter and Jesus on the Street numerous, numerous times. And i got to tell you, I was so impressed with Degage. And uh, our entire staff, we went down there and we served lunch to their clients, to homeless people in Grand Rapids. And it was uh, Chili Dog and Cheese Friday at Degage. And 
I, I guarantee you, most of you, you probably wouldn't even want to eat this meal. It probably wouldn't meet maybe dietary standards for some of us. And yet, to see the people there, just to be so overjoyed and to be so thankful. And I worked the cash register. Mike actually worked the hot dogs. And uh, Justin and Amy worked the bingo game. And, and Nancy and Christine were the servants. And I, I worked the cash register. And I, I've never seen people have to scrape together literally nickels and dimes and pennies and voucher cards in order to buy a hot dog and cheese fries. And yet they were so overjoyed with this lunch. You can ask any one of us on staff, and we would all tell you it was hard. It was hard to see the level of poverty, um, the level of mental illness and confusion, and yet, at the same time, to see them be so thankful for their meal. I, I think we have opportunities as a church to do more in the ways in which God can use us to serve here, both in our church and in our neighborhoods, and then certainly into the regions that God calls us all around. We must do more. Finally, last thought that I want to leave you with is, is really, it's already been said, and that's that Christmas Eve is coming. And one of the ways in which we can really care for the people and close the gap around us is to invite them in, to invite people around us into the fabric of our lives. And our spiritual lives should be the place we should not shy away from inviting anyone into. In fact, this time of year, more than any other, is, is a willingness and an openness by people to say, I'll go to church. And, and they're, I think, in many ways, just hardwired to, to want to go to church on Christmas Eve. In fact, our candlelight service would be a great opportunity for you to invite your friends, to invite your neighbors, to invite your coworkers, and to share your faith with them. I know sometimes people think, well, pastor, that seems self-serving, right? You're going to get a bunch of people in the room, and then you're going to take a large offering. And I want to be really clear with you that that has never been our intention we want everyone to hear the message and to receive the gift of Jesus this Christmas. There's no offering that we take on Christmas Eve. Jesus is the gift that we want to celebrate. So I want to give you just a few moments to, to think about these thoughts and maybe even to think about and ask God who you should invite to Christmas this year. If you would bow your heads and pray with me, please. God, I just thank you for this day, and I thank you for the challenge of this story. I pray that we wouldn't move too past through the people and the experiences that you give us, God, that you are not random, that you give us these opportunities and you challenge us to close the gap and to narrow the space between us. Ultimately, that's why your son Jesus came, to be the God that is with us so that we can be with others and share this love and this great news. God, I pray that you would go before us in all the ways that we need you in our lives, but that you would go before us in these ways in which we can just reach out and extend your love and your grace and your mercy to every single person. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide. 